This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Micro. I'm Drew Hawkins, and this episode is part of an interview series for Miami Book Fair, where members of Team Micro, that's myself, Dylan Evers, Maymay Kaufman, and Kirsten Renault, interview authors appearing at the fair about their work. For more information about their programming and to check out the incredible roster of authors appearing this year, visit MiamiBookFair.com. And be sure to follow them at Miami Book Fair and hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022 for more updates. Now, back to the show. Welcome to Micro. I'm Maymay Kaufman, and today I'm speaking with accomplished violinist and author Brendan Slocum. We'll be talking about his debut novel, The Violin Conspiracy, published by Anchor Books earlier this year. To start the show, we've asked him to select and read a passage from the book. So here's Brendan Slocum reading from The Violin Conspiracy. Enjoy. A diner beckoned, perfumed with the scents of roasting meats and grilled onion. He thought of sitting at the counter, but decided to eat back at the hotel. What you having, hun? said the thick-waisted, thick-accented woman at the counter. He ordered tater tots, cob salad, and a slice of apple pie to go. While he waited, he called Nicole. He hadn't talked to her since early that afternoon, and he wondered how her own performance that evening had gone. She was playing a chamber music recital, Brandenburg Concerto No. 6, which featured two viola soloists. She'd been very excited about the performance, and he regretted having to miss it, but she didn't pick up. His call went straight to voicemail. Hey, my recital went well. How did yours go? Did the cellist get the rhythm right? I'm going to get something to eat before I head back to the hotel. I'll call you later. A few minutes later, takeout bag in hand, he shouldered open the diner's door and the cold Boston night blew around him. He wasn't really aware of the people standing outside on the sidewalk until one of them spoke. The voice was terrifyingly familiar, yet high, yet gravelly. That was just the moment, most amazing performance I think I've ever heard Dante Marks and his sister stood not five feet away their hands in their pockets, their eyes bright beneath ski caps pulled low across their foreheads. Behind them was a very tall man wearing a tan overcoat. He kept looking left, then right, then at Ray. What the? You did such a fine job tonight, Andrea said. She sounded earnest, but he somehow thought she was mocking him. Why are you here? Are you following me? We know you're often traveling, so we wanted to see for ourselves that you're taking good care of our violin, Dante explained. He surged through Ray, our violin. The words lay on the pavement, cold and dead, like something run over. 
he took a step forward. I know what drugs you, I don't know what drugs you two freaks are doing that make you think you can follow me around, but let me make it clear to you. This is my violin. I'll say it again. My violin. It belonged to my great, great grandfather. And now it's mine. You're out of your freaking minds. If you think you're getting your dirty fingers on it. Oh, I'm so glad you read that passage. I I do have a question for it, but I'm going to build for it because I, I have a few more things I just have to ask first, which is you have a very impressive background in music performance and education. So what impulse drove you to put down the bow and pick up the pen to write this incredible debut novel? Uh, it's actually a combination of a couple of things. Um, COVID-19 really was a motivating factor. And it's one of the only good things that came out of COVID, you know, um, during the summer of 2020, all of my pre-summer of 2020, all of the the weddings, the recitals, the rehearsals, the performances, the lessons, everything stopped. And that was my main source of revenue. Everything stopped. And, um, you know, I, it gave me an opportunity in between eating, getting fatter and fatter on the couch to uh, <laughs> actually pick up a pen or actually in this case, a computer and, and start writing. I'd written something. I'd written a, a draft for a novel 20 years ago. Um, and it was terrible. Uh, <laughs> and so I hope no one ever looks for it because if you do, I'll deny it and say someone else <laughs> did it. Um, but it gave me the opportunity to at least, uh, be creative because, you know, I, I even lost the motivation to practice because I had nothing to practice for anymore. And, um, I sent off a manuscript and I got back a rejection letter and the agent who read my letter, I uh, read my manuscript, said that I had a good voice and I should write what I know, which is not science fiction. Um, and I wrote the first chapter of The Violin Conspiracy, which was actually Ray in his high school classroom. And uh, then the rest of the novel was born. Oh, I love that. that. That's a very inspiring story. <laughs> <laughs> um, so speaking of Ray and his performances and this um, conjunction of these different creative impulses to write and perform. Personally, in my reading experience, I was so intrigued by Ray's musical performance scenes Mm -hmm. because you took an auditory experience of hearing and playing music and made it visual on the page. These scenes were amazing to me as a reader. From a craft point of view, how did you pull that off? <laughs> well, um, a lot of a lot of feedback and a lot of editing. It um, as as a musician, you know, the terminology that I use when I'm describing music, it makes perfect sense to me and to my other musician friends. And I would let non musicians read some of the passages, and, you know, his staccato or his sautier bowing here and this marcato and this and that. You know, just all the uh, music terminology. And my friends were like. I have no idea what this means. I, I don't understand any of this. And, you know, I was like, okay, I need more imagery. I need more. What what else can I do to make you understand what it's like whenever I pick up an instrument and play? And so, um, you know, the metaphor started rolling out and it's like, wow, yeah, okay. And I would let my friends read those metaphors and they're just like, this makes perfect sense. Yeah, I get it. Is this what it's like when you play every single time? This is, this is how it is, especially when you've been working so hard on a piece of music and, you know, you enjoy it and you want your audience to enjoy it. I just wanted to give that feeling of uh, just, just pleasure and beauty and joy from playing an instrument or playing a piece of music to the, uh, to the readers. Wow. Well, 
I think you completely nailed it because I personally, you know, I'm a classical music fan, but I'm in no way a musician. So I, I just, those scenes were just phenomenal for me. And this might be a silly comparison, but stay with me. The book at large and those scenes in particular made me think of the Queen's Gambit, um, the TV show and the book. I did both because I'm that nerd. (laughs) And again, I don't know anything about chess. I couldn't play you in chess. And yet both in the book and the movie, the chess scenes were riveting. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how did they do that? And when I was reading this book, I was like, wow, how it's the same thing. How did he do that? (laughs) I'm going to have to agree with those, those chess scenes in the Queen's Gambit. I mean, it was I remember playing chess as a kid and, you know, I, there's a gap where you don't play for like 10, 15 years. And well, it was all coming back to me. Like, Whoa, that that's pretty impressive. That was really awesome. I, I love the way that it was, it was portrayed um, in the series and just to get a comparison, you know, that, that means a lot. It's, 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 it's great. And of course that means that I am very selfishly hoping there might be some type of adaptation for the screen. Cause I think it would translate so well. Oh. I don't think that's being selfish at all. Sony has actually opted the rights uh, to the violent conspiracy and um, they are in the works putting a mini series together right now. And oh I got I received an email a couple of months ago that uh, they're just looking for a showrunner right now and moving forward. That's great. I didn't think I could be more excited right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had no idea. That wasn't a leading question. I had no idea. That's fantastic. Okay, so um, like I said, I'm so happy you read that particular passage because um, this was a big this was a big question that I had for you. Um, there are many scenes of racism in this book, from microaggressions to very dangerous police encounters, and of course, like from the scene you read, the descendants of the slave owner who owned Ray's ancestors who attempt to take his violin. Each of these moments for me, were stomach-turning in their own way. And throughout each, I was uncomfortable and angry for Ray. And other times, I was biting my finger, biting my fingernails, worried that his life was in danger. Can you talk to us about how important it was to have so many different kinds of racism in a novel about classical music? Absolutely. Um, I, I think the uh, instances of racism and discrimination were actually quite shocking for a lot of people. Um, just for a lot of people who have never experienced those things. And, and I have often been told by people reading this book that, you know, I, I didn't believe a word of it. Things like that really don't happen. And that's what I've been hearing my entire life. It's like, you know, when, when a lot of the instances in the book actually came from my own experiences and when I would tell my friends and, you know, colleagues, this happened immediately I was met with, you're exaggerating. It wasn't that bad. No, it's not like that. So putting it down on the page for people to actually read and be able to identify with was very, very validating. Um, I've received messages from people that say, you know, that exact same thing happened to me and no one, no one believes you when it does happen. Um, and, and people need to see that there is, you know, I, I, I for lack of a better term, a, a dark side to, to, to life, to life as, as a minority, to life as a black man, you know, um, and I can only speak from my experiences, but it is, it is definitely real. And um, these instances do take place and they're very, very traumatizing, you know, from um, the, the wedding scene to uh, the Baton Rouge scene. And, you know, th- those things really happen. And uh, it's, it's, it's very, very, very frustrating when, 
you, you think you're doing everything right. And then, you know, it doesn't matter how right you are. It, you know, these things happen to you and you're just supposed to take it. And then you can't even get anyone to believe you when, when you talk about how horrible it was. And, you know, it's, it's, there's always an excuse. There's always an excuse. And, you know, so I'm, I'm just glad that I got to put it out there. So people who know could relate to it. And those who didn't know could actually begin to say, huh, well, maybe I should start looking at things a little bit differently. Great point. And I'm glad you mentioned that Baton Rouge scene because, you know, there's so many moments from beginning to end where you can just root for Ray. And a lot of it is based on his performances. Like when he gets into the great Tchaikovsky competition, I don't want to say how it goes and everything, but there's a lot of rooting (laughs) for him in terms of his talent. But that Baton Rouge scene when he, you know, for readers who, you know, obviously have not read yet, Um, He has a very dangerous police encounter and he misses a big performance. He calls this press conference to call out, you know, to say, I missed this performance and everyone should know why. That was a huge moment where I just had my fist raised like, yes, yes, call this press conference. And it was such a it was a different kind of moment to root for him in a different Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. I I just thought that was brilliant. That's not even a question. I just wanted to say that, which is brilliant. (laughs) Well, thank you. That one was really, um, I really wanted to include that chapter because the only difference in Ray's life and my life was that Ray went to prison. I did not go to prison. Everything else was verbatim. That's how it happened. And that was in the summer of 2000. And I will, for that reason, I will never go back to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, ever, ever. There's a sack of money, you know, hey, Brendan, come and get, nope, not doing it. Have to mail it to me, not going. Good for you. <laughs> you. Good for you. Um, well, speaking of the South a little bit, you're from North Carolina. Um, I'm from Georgia. All right. Um, so, uh, and I did live in New Orleans for a very long time. Um, so being from the South, one thing I loved about this novel is that you showed Southerners, not, maybe not the ones in Baton Rouge, but <laughs> you, you showed Southerners um, with intelligence and complexity, which is not always the case in modern fiction, as opposed to some of the usual unfortunate tropes that we see. Mm-hmm. And um, this was just one expectation that you subverted in this novel. And you can talk about that, but also can you share with us what other expectations did you want to subvert with this book? Well, the, uh, the, the way that the Southerners were portrayed, you know, people from North Carolina, people from Georgia, um, I, I didn't really have a specific, uh, you know, I, I wasn't trying to portray anyone in, specific, in a specific way. It's just how I see people. It's just the interactions that I have had with people. Um, and I know the stereotypes are out there and we've all seen them. And, you know, it, it, that's exactly what it is. It's a stereotype. You know, people are people. people some people are actually like that. Uh, you know, a lot of people are, are not. Um, I, I never wanted to uh, portray someone as something that I did not see for myself. You know, I would never, ever say, OK, because this person is from North Carolina, they're from Georgia, they're going to talk with this accent or they're going to, you know, have this mindset or they're going to vote this way or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Never want to do that. I always want to portray people as people, people as you know them, doesn't matter where they are, where they're from, makes no difference at all. Um, and I also wanted to kind of dispel the myth of classical music or or let people understand that classical music is not just an elitist activity. It's not just for the people who live in a certain zip code or who have a certain uh, amount in their bank account or have a certain last name or certain pedigree. It's it's not, it's for everybody. Um, And, you know, sometimes people try to 
steer you away from classical music because one, they don't think you're going to understand it. They don't think that you've got the capability, their capacity to appreciate it, which is just, just, just rubbish. That is garbage, you know? And um, I really wanted to let people know that, wow, this guy can enjoy this music, something that you would never think that he would be, you know, so into, and he loves it this much. Huh? Maybe there are other people like him out there who would get the same, same amount of enjoyment from it. And, you know, we won't try to, you know, keep people away from this because we think they're, we are helping them by keeping them away from this. We're going to steer you towards something that you're going to be successful in or something that you're going to enjoy more. You know, I just, I just want people to understand that this music in general and classical music, it is for everybody. It truly is for everyone. I'd say mission accomplished. <laughs> Absolutely. With this incredible book. Um, okay. So something that we have been, um, oh, on i'm jumping questions i'm not rushing this i'm not rushing let me go back so this book is of course a mystery and the reveal near the end of the book of what happened to the violin is amazing (laughs) i it it caught me off guard um i don't want to spoil it but can you tell us what it was like building up the mystery for a whole novel without giving too much away so that the surprise was as impactful as it was did you have it all meticulously planned out or were there surprises for you in the writing process? Oh man, there were a ton of surprises for me. I, I'll tell you the, the thief changed maybe three or four times. <gasps> it definitely. That's what I was dying to know. <laughs> <laughs> this, the, the final version is not the first draft or even the second draft. Um, and I, I did a lot of, uh, I worked very closely with my agent to, to work on the pacing and to figure out, okay, now who's going to do this? I pulled an Agatha Christie. Um, and, you know, I, I love her, her novels and, and her, her mysteries. I, you know, I was a huge fan as a kid and, you know, you know, Murder on the Orient Express was one of my favorite books growing up. And as I'm reading, I was like, how could I not figure that out? That, that was brilliant. And I, I learned doing some research into her that she would actually go back after having written the entire story and plug in who the person, who the culprit was. And I'm like, I'm going to do that. And I worked <laughs> with a couple of people, you know, is it going to be this person? Eh, that's not as, uh, that doesn't get you as much in this part. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this. And uh, yeah, I had to rewrite some chapters and, you know, uh, rearrange some chapters, like chapter seven became chapter 17 and it worked out better that way for pacing. But um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm happy that uh, a lot of people tell me I had no idea. And then some people tell me, oh, I figured it out right away. And I'm like, well, okay. But I'm glad that for those who sure hadn't, yeah, yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> I'm glad for those who didn't figure it out. You know, it it took them to the very end to um, figure out who who did it, and I, I was I was very happy with the way that that turned out. Same, same. <laughs> I I oh, I was I felt winded, <laughs> winded by that reveal, and also like how could I not have seen it? Um, I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan too, so um, whew. Nailed it. Agatha would be proud if I can speak for her. Good to hear. (laughs) Okay. So something that um, we've been asking every author that we're interviewing this season is um, what were you reading while you were working on this novel? But I want you to answer that, but also what were you listening to as you worked on the violent conspiracy? Okay, so way too hard or way too easy a question. I don't right. know. How you want. You're you're probably going to be like, what is wrong with this guy? I cannot believe he even <laughs> said this. All right, so again, I, I wrote this in the summer of 2020, and I was all I was doing was eating. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> just 
eating. That's all I did. Then I started exercising again. So my routine would be to go and exercise. I'd go outside and run, run to, I live in DC. So I would run down to the national Basilica, run around and then come back to my apartment. Um, I would then turn the TV on and the news was always on, you know, because the coronavirus is ravaging the world. News was always on. And then when the news wasn't on, I'm not even embarrassed to say this. I don't care. I would watch reruns of Alice and Three's Company. That would always be on in the background. Um, And I would literally type while the TV was on in the background. And I wasn't reading anything uh, during that time because I didn't want any outside influence on uh, what it was that that I was writing. You know, this is my first novel, my first real thing. I wanted to be hyper-focused. And it's like, well, how can you be hyper-focused if you're watching Three's Company in the background? But Truly, I just, you know, I, I'm so accustomed to, you know, being in the classroom. There's always a buzz going on around you while you're doing things. And um, I, I, I can't listen to classical music at all when I'm doing any type of work. I can't do it um, as a musician. So curious. I was I'm, so curious. I was like, it, it has to be all or nothing, right? Oh, no, absolutely nothing. I can't. I'm, I'm constantly analyzing it. The flute needs to be a little louder here, less oboe here, more clarinet, more staccato. The str- you know, always every piece, especially if it's a piece of music that I really enjoy. So yeah, no classical music, just Alice and Three's Company reruns. It's a brilliant answer, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> like, what is wrong with this guy? Who is this? <laughs> <laughs> You're doing everything right. Oh, this has been such a joy. All right, everybody, be sure to stop by and see Brendan Slocum at Miami Book Fair, November 13th through 20th in lovely Miami, Florida, and pick up a copy of his debut novel, The Violent Conspiracy, available at your favorite bookstore and on Audible. Brendan Slocum, thank you so much for stopping by. Pleasure has been mine. Thank you.